0: There's two readings today. The first readings from the Gospel of Matthew. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, And the second reading is selections from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But, Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, "'I am the resurrection and the life. "'The one who believes in me will live even though they die. "'Do you believe this?' "'Yes, Lord,' she replied. "'I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, "'who is to come into the world.' "'After she had said this, "'she went back and called her sister Mary aside. "'The teacher is here,' she said, "'and is asking for you.' "'When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, "'she fell at his feet and said, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.' When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. "'Where have you put him?' he asked. They told him, "'Lord, come and see.' Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, "'See how much he loved him?' But some of them said, "'Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying?' Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across his entrance." Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life.
1: Good evening. Merry Christmas. the uh, The first story, the first passage you heard read, is known as historically as the Massacre of the Innocents, is the name it's been given, and it's it's actually got a, its own day in the church calendar. It's observed December twenty eighth in the Western Church, December twenty ninth in the Eastern Church. And you heard the the details of what happened. Herod, who's the politically appointed ruler of Judea at the time that Christ is born. Freaks out about hearing about this this new king that sits born, and so he goes and kills all of the the boys, two years old and under in the the town Bethlehem where Jesus was born and From what we know of the the population of the town at that time it 's estimated to be right around twenty kids, twenty boys um, so understandably, this passage doesn 't get talked about a lot at Christmas time because it doesn 't fit with the kind of themes and emotions we want to be feeling. You know, it's it's this mass murder right in the middle of the Christmas story. So we just kind of ignore it. We just kind of brush it aside. But if there ever was a year to talk about it, this is the year. Because the parallels are really striking. You know, this self-obsessed, crazy guy takes the lives of 20 innocent children, totally senseless, totally devastating. You heard the passage. It says the... The mothers were weeping and could not be comforted because their children were no more. It's right there in the middle of the the first Christmas story. These women in Bethlehem who are weeping and cannot be comforted because their children are no more. And the, the beauty of the Christmas story is marred by this. Just the same way that the beauty of this Christmas, the beauty of tonight, is marred by 20 mothers and fathers up the road weeping and not able to be comforted because their children are no more and the the question that the episode raises and it's become cliché because it's asked so often but I think it's still the right question the question is why would god let this happen Because you see in the passage, it's not like he didn't know it was going to happen. It's not like he couldn't have stopped it. That's what's so infuriating. An angel comes to Joseph and tells Joseph, hey, this is going to happen. So take Jesus and Mary and get out of here and flee to safety. So why couldn't an angel come and told the other 20 fathers and mothers, hey, this is going to happen? Or why couldn't an angel come and struck Herod dead before he could go through with it? Why didn't God stop it? And these events, they have a tendency to kind of make God look bad because it makes it look like either he doesn't care on the one hand or he's not powerful enough to do anything about it on the other. Philosophers have have long called that the the problem of evil, and it's considered by many to be one of the most persuasive proofs against the existence of God. And it's exactly what I just said. It says, if if there's so much suffering in the world, and there is... It's not just it's not just as an aside, it's not just you know, Bethlehem, it's not just Newtown. It's 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 happening always. It's it's not you know, you say, well, we can stop this, we can keep it from happening again. Well, no, we can't. No matter what laws we pass, no matter what advances we make in mental health, we can never stop it from happening again. You say, how do you know that? Because it it happened ten days ago, and it's already happened again each of the ten days since somewhere in the world. Each of the ten days since somewhere there's been senseless killing, somewhere there's been senseless suffering. It's always happening. It's never not happening. It's not weird when it does happen. It's just weird when it happens to you or when it happens to somebody you know or when it happens in a place where you recognize, is the name of. So it's always happening. And so you know the, the problem of evil goes like this. If, if that's the way the world is, then either God is good, but he's not all-powerful, or he's all-powerful, but he's not good. But he can't be both, because if he was both, this wouldn't be happening. In, in other words, either God is good, but he's not really God, or he's God, but he's not really good. That's the of intellectual objection. The, there's an emotional side of it too, which is probably even more important, which is, look, I don't care about the the abstract suffering. I don't care about the, the philosophers. I don't care about, um, you know, how often this happens or doesn't happen. For me, it's that I've seen suffering. I've watched it or I've experienced it myself. And so it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if you've got some fancy argument, a way to get God off the hook. Because it's not okay. It's just not okay. I mean, if you, if you, maybe if you go abstract, you can kind of think your way out of it. But if you just sit for a minute, if you just sit for one minute with a real person that's really gone through something, or you just w- allow yourself to think for one minute about some of the terrible things that really do happen in the world, it'll, just, it'll, it'll wash over you. You don't have to think about it. You will just know. You will know in your heart that the idea that there is a loving God is this cruel joke. You just know. It's the emotional objection. So what's the, what's the response? Why are we talking about this tonight? The, the response, the only response is that there's no, there's no counter-argument. There's no um, rhetorical way to respond. The only response, the only Christian response is a narrative response. It's the response of an event. It's the response of a story. And the reason we're talking about this tonight is because the only response to that kind of evil and suffering, the only way to make sense of it is to point to and cling to the story that begins on Christmas, the story of God coming into the world. You say, well, how do they relate? You know, what's the the connection between that and people's suffering? That's what I want to look at for a few minutes tonight. And the place I want to look to answer that question is the second passage you just heard read. This, uh, this story from John chapter 11 where Jesus goes and he's, he's had a friend die, um, untimely death, and he goes and, and meets the, the family of the friend and kind of deals with it. And in the passage, it shows us the three things that Jesus does with our pain and with our suffering. We could have looked at a lot of different places. Um, it's all throughout the New Testament, but this passage in particular has all three of them side by side. So the first thing that Jesus does with our pain and our suffering is he feels it with us. And you heard that in the passage that John just read. It's the strangest thing about that passage in John chapter 11. When Jesus comes to, to Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, Lazarus has died. And he comes and uh, he sees them weeping and you know, mourning. And his response is he starts weeping with them. And he, he actually says he feels angry too and he starts weeping. And this is really odd. Because uh, we know from the end of the passage that he's got a plan. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to come and he's going to raise Lazarus back to life. He's going to resurrect him. And so it's very strange that he would show up on the scene and when he sees them weeping, would start weeping too. You would think he would kind of be like smiling or winking or, you know, like I've, I've got a plan. I've, I've got this under control. If he doesn't. He weeps with them. He feels angry. It says deep anger welled up within him. What is this about? What does this tell us? It tells us, and this is remarkable, it tells us that even though God has a plan, even though God is going to make it all right in the end, and that's what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, despite that, he still fully enters into our pain with us and weeps right alongside of us. So when those mothers in Bethlehem are weeping, God is weeping with them. When the mothers in Connecticut are weeping, God is weeping with them. And the times that you've wept, the times that you've suffered, God has wept right alongside you. Even though he has a plan, his knowledge of the big picture does not obscure or lessen in any way the emotion that he feel, the emotional connection he feels to him. What's Jesus is angry about? It says he's angry. What's he angry about? He's not angry you know, at Lazarus. It's not his fault. He's not angry at... The people that are crying, he's crying with them. He's not angry at himself. He has a plan. He's angry at death. He's angry that this happens, that the world is a place where this kind of thing happens. And that's how God feels. That's how God feels every time something terrible happens is this deep anger. He doesn't just feel like, well, you know, that's, that's how the world is today. He doesn't just accept it. He feels angry every time. It's the first thing the passage shows us is that God feels with us the pain of evil and suffering. The second thing uh, is that not only does he feel it, but he takes the worst of it on himself. You remember hearing uh, Jesus when he says he's going to go back to Judea to be with Lazarus and his sisters. The disciples say, well, that's not a very good idea. You just came from there. They tried to to stone you. It would be suicide to go back. And he says, well, I'm going back anyway. You know, Thomas said, "Well, let's we might you know throw up our hands. Let's go and die with him." So they all knew that by going back, he was walking into a death trap. And what the, the message of the passage is to to go and resurrect Lazarus, to interrupt Lazarus' funeral, he has to walk into his own funeral. To bring Lazarus out of the grave, he has to go and bury himself. And the end of the passage confirms that when it says, you know, they, they reported that he had done this miracle to the authorities. And then after that, they, they had decided for sure they have to kill him because he's that dangerous. There's no other way to stop him. So what is this about, this this dying of Christ, this going to the cross? Um, you know, how does this connect to our suffering? Well, first thing, I mean, is just the obvious that it's standing in solidarity with us, you know, that he doesn't get off the hook. It seems unjust when you look first at the Christmas story and you see these, these 20 baby boys that are killed. And then the 21st, Jesus somehow escapes. He gets whisked away. An angel gives him a head up, heads up. And you, you think, oh, okay. So this is how this is going to work. God's going to come into the world and live among us, but he's going to cheat. He's going he's gonna, to, you know, when the, when the bad stuff happens, he's going to find a way out. He's going to escape. And the the first thing the cross means is just that that's not how it works. Because the 21st innocent boy also dies. Jesus, the 21st innocent boy, dies too. And the 21st mother, Mary, weeps too. The only difference is his death is that much more violent. Her sobs are that much more violent. So he doesn't get off the hook. But it's not just about solidarity. It's not just to kind of stand with us, because then you could say, well, okay, so more suffering, is that supposed to make me happy, you know, that God suffers too? How does that solve the problem? It's deeper than that, and, and the way you figure out what it's really about is by looking at Jesus's reactions and the things he says in the Garden of Gethsemane leading up to the cross. So the scripture says he's not calm, he's not serene, he's not at peace, Rather, in the garden, he's, he's basically a wreck. The, uh, it says his soul is sorrowful to the point of death. It says that he's sweating blood, and he's begging God, please don't make me go through this. Please let me out. Please, there's got to be some other way. So what's that about? Well, for, what it's not about is it's not about the physical suffering of the cross, The cross is terrible. Crucifixion is terrible. But it can't be that because a lot of martyrs have suffered equally physically painful deaths calmly without that type of travail. So it can't be that. It has to be something deeper than that. And the only explanation is that when he goes to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to God, expecting heaven to be open to him like it always is every time he prays. Instead of heaven being open to him, he looks and sees hell itself open up beneath his feet. And that's the words of the creed. He was buried. He descended into hell. And that, Mm -hmm. understanding that, understanding that descent into hell is the only thing that's going to ever make suffering at all okay. And let me me explain why that is. When when bad things happen, Christians tend to immediately go and start talking about heaven. Heaven, heaven, heaven. It's going to all be okay someday. When we go to heaven, every tear will be wiped away. It'll be fine. And I don't know about you, but to me, this language always comes across as really childish, really empty really kind of pie in the sky, like, we'll just, you know, it's going to be fine. And there's no real rationale for why. There's no real explanation. We just hope that God is going to do this and someday snap of the fingers and it'll all go away. What grounds that hope is hell. The covers of uh, The Economist this week, actually, is uh, on hell. The cover story of their Christmas issue is a story on, on hell. And it's, you know, this, as you'd expect, kind of this glib article given a historical survey and kind of talking about how how ridiculous is it that we ever believed in something as as awful as hell. You know, I'm so glad we've outgrown that. It's so quaint. I'm glad it's in our our past. There's nothing quaint about it, and nothing underscores that more than tragedy and then bad things happen. Because the question for somebody who doesn't believe in hell when you face tragedy, when you face something awful is, so, so wait a minute, you want this to just continue? You want these kinds of things to just go on forever and ever? Because one thing we know for sure, the forces that make human beings do these kinds of things are not just going to go away quietly. That we know for certain. They're not just going to kind of peter out. God's going to have to do something. And the Bible tells us what he's going to do. He's going to put an end to all of it someday. He's going to put an end to all of that suffering someday. But it tells us specifically how. And it's not, he's not going to do it by preaching a sermon or teaching a class. He's not going to do it by casting a spell or giving everybody a magic potion. He's going to do it by waging a war. And when he wins the war, when he's victorious, there has to be a place to throw all of that. There has to be a place to put it all so that it can burn, so that it can be extinguished, so that it can be no more. Hell is that place. Hell is what that's for. It's God destroying evil. God putting an end to it. And there can be no heaven without that. There can be no heaven without God actively putting in an end to evil. And we think that it just you know because God's all-powerful, that he can just do anything he wants by waving his magic wand. That's not what God being all-powerful means. It means he can do anything, but some things are extremely difficult for him. Some things are still extremely complicated and extremely costly. And putting an end to evil happens to be one of those things. And so you'd say, well, okay... Great, so if God can, can put an end to all this evil by throwing it into hell and burning it all up, then why doesn't he just do that? Why don't we just get it over with? Why doesn't he just do that now? Well, you don't know what you're asking. Because the question is, to what to what degree are you complicit in all of this evil? that goes on. You say, well, I haven't, I haven't done any of these things. Yeah, but, but to what degree are you complicit? To what degree are you truly innocent. And if you're not truly innocent, if you're not hundred percent innocent, then the question is, well, what percentage innocence do you think you should be, have to be able to get yourself off the hook? You know, where are you going to arbitrarily draw the line? Well, people that are, that are 5% innocent, they're okay, but, but people that are only 4% innocent aren't? I mean, just, it's just ridiculous. There's no place to draw the line. Everybody's guilty. Everybody's cooperated in this somehow. The reason Jesus has to go to hell is because God has to find a way to put an end to evil and put an end to suffering without putting an end to you and me. Jesus going to hell is that solution. Jesus taking that on himself is that solution so that he can destroy evil and suffering without destroying us. That's the second thing the passage teaches us, is that Jesus and God don't just feel our pain with us, but Jesus takes the worst of it upon himself. The third thing uh, is this resurrection. And, you know, the, the last thing somebody might say is, okay, so let's say Jesus and God do feel the, the pain with us. And let's say I believe you that, that somehow the death on the cross puts in, makes it possible for God to someday put an end to death and suffering without putting an end to us. So let's say I track with you that far. I'm still bothered by something. I'm still bothered by just even if it does end someday, why well, it's gone on this long? And this is kind of back to the emotional objection. Because even, even, if, even if it's true, even if it's true that the cross means an end to all this evil, even if it's true that he feels it with us, still, why? Why do some people live most of their lives hurting is that okay just because it's going to end someday? Is that okay? Is that okay that God allows some human beings to just writhe in agony for the majority of their lives? Is that justifiable? And even if it's just erased, if we just erase that someday and act like it never happened, does that make it okay? And the answer to that is in in the passage, um, and it has to do with the fact that it's not going to be erased. It's never going to be erased. The bad things that are happening are never going to go away big misunderstanding. And you see this with what Jesus does with Lazarus. Lazarus dies. He really dies. He's really dead. He's in the tomb for four days. And then Jesus comes and raises him back to life. And there's two separate things that have happened. Lazarus died, and Jesus raises him back to life. Now, the second thing is dependent on the first thing. He couldn't raise him back to life if he hadn't died first. But they don't nullify each other. They don't cancel each other out. It's not like he turns the clock back and makes it as though he had never died. It's not as though he makes everybody forget that he had died. He died. Everybody knows he died. Everybody remembered he died, and now he's been raised back to life. And the question is, which, which would be better? If he had never died in the first place, or this death and this resurrection? And clearly, the death and the resurrection is better. Clearly, it's better once he's been raised. Clearly, he loves his life more. Clearly, he, he understands God's goodness more after having gone through the death and been raised, than if he had never died at all. It's true of Lazarus. It's true of Christ's life. The worst thing that's ever happened, ever, the most innocent death, is this death of Christ on the cross. And God turns it into the best thing that's ever happened, forgiveness for all. And it's true of the story of the universe, the cosmos as a whole. The worst thing that's ever happened is sin coming into the world, evil coming into the world, making God's good creation this place of pain and suffering. And yet God turns that, turns that terrible thing into something better. Not just better than the terrible thing, but better than the original plan. The illustration that we've used before is it's like an artist painting this painting. And, uh, you know, somebody comes along and commits this, active vandalism on the painting, some big scrawl across it. So it's basically ruined. And the artist, instead of painting over it, or instead of throwing it away and getting a new canvas and starting over, finds a way to incorporate the scrawl into the work of art so that the final work of art is better than the original design. It brings it in and makes it better than the original design. Now does that mean that he planned it? No. Does that mean that he likes it? No. But he still found a way to make it part of the original design. And the same thing is true with God and evil. He didn't plan it. He doesn't like it. He didn't okay it. But he finds a way to take it and make it so. Because of it, the the end result is better than if it had never happened. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal that these things, these suffering, don't just get erased. Because then it's like, well... At least it, it doesn't continue. It, it gets taken, and the memory of it, you'll know about it. You'll remember it. It won't go away. The memory of it makes the glory on the other side that much better. This is why Jesus still has scars in his hands when he raises from the dead. Because you look at the scars, and you remember what God did. You, you remember how horrible the cross was, but you see what God has done with that horrible thing and the beautiful thing he's made it into. And that's what, what God will do. With, has done with the the weeping of those mothers in Bethlehem the first Christmas, that's what God will do with the weeping of the mothers in Newtown this Christmas. That's what God will do with all suffering. And if you get that, if you get that promise, that promise of Easter, that promise of Good Friday, that promise that starts at Christmas, then you realize, well, okay, Christmas isn't just a um, heartwarming story. You know, this isn't just a A thing that kind of brings us all together once a year. Rather, it's the the, the one hope we have. The one hope we have in a very cold, very dark, very bleak world is that this is true. It's the one thing you can cling to. It's the one light that can pierce the darkness. And if you have it as yours, if you appropriate it, if you take it as your own story, if you live in it, then you have this shelter from the storm. You have something to cling to. But without it, you're kind of left alone. It's everything. It's everything. The story of Christmas is everything because it's the only thing that can make sense of the suffering. And you can block out the suffering. You can try to not think about it. You probably weren't planning on thinking about it Christmas Eve, and I apologize for that. Um, But you you can only do that so long. And if you face it, if you really face it, then you have to have an answer. And there's only one answer that's consistently satisfying for the last two thousand years. That's what we celebrate tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you not only feel our suffering and you not only take the worst of it on the cross, but that finally and most importantly, you transform it, you find a way to, to take the bad things that have happened to us and turn them into something even more beautiful than would have been the case if they had never happened at all. God, it's hard to believe that sometimes, and it's hard to look at what we've gone through, what others have gone through, and really have faith that you're going to do that, that you're going to make it something better than we could have ever imagined. But we look at the cross, and we see the way you did it there, and we, we tell you tonight that we know that you can do it with us. We know that you can do it with our world. We thank you for coming at Christmas. We thank you for dying for us. Most of all, we thank you for rising again to take our pain and make it into something
0: meaningful. It's in your name we pray. Amen.